Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Tales from the Heart on the Road. I'm Lisa Salberg, founder and CEO of the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association, joining you today from Pittsburgh. So my backdrop's a little different for those who are viewing on Facebook. If you're listening on a podcast, it is currently October 28th at 10.32 a.m. Eastern Time. You can always email us at support at 4hcm.org to, to ask any questions. Today, I am joined by Dr. Steve Amon of the Mayo Clinic. Good morning, Steve. Morning, Lisa. Thanks for joining us again. And I'm going to go over a couple of topics today. And first off, a recognition that October is Sudden Cardiac Arrest Awareness Month. We know that some with HCM have a higher risk of sudden cardiac arrest. And we are grateful for the advances in healthcare that have brought us such things as implantable defibrillators, uh, public access defibrillation, hands-only CPR. And we encourage everybody to learn about hands-only CPR and the use of AEDs. Um, you can reach out to your local American Heart Association to take a class and learn about these important uh, skills and um, be prepared. In the HCM community, we hear the word sudden death and we get really nervous, but can we please talk about what the numbers look like in our community for sudden cardiac arrest? Yeah, it's, it's a really important point. Obviously, we don't want anyone to have to experience that or a family to have to experience that, but the if you look at the community of patients who have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, eight out of a thousand patients each year have a cardiac arrest, less than one out of a hundred. Uh, and even for patients who are at high risk, their, their annual risk for, for dying suddenly is usually less than three or 4% even the high-risk patients. That means most patients who we deem as high-risk and offer ICDs to are unlikely to need their device. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, it, it, sometimes it's better to have the safety net and not need it than, than to skip the safety net. But I, I think that it's a scary topic. I certainly uh, would have anxiety if someone told me I had a higher risk about it myself. But if we, if we put it in the context, it's not likely to happen to most people. Most people with HCM actually die from non-heart disease-related problems. So uh, just, just to keep it in mind, but yes, we as uh, healthcare providers, I like your suggestions for making sure people are aware of what they can do as patients and caregivers. And then we as HCM medical community need to make sure that we're doing risk stratification and conversations with our patients on a regular basis because it's not a one and done uh, situation. So older monitors, uh, new discussions every time a patient comes in are, are worth a visit. I think you brought up an excellent point there that it isn't a one and done. How often should a patient revisit their risk of cardiac arrest? The way we wrote it in the, in the HCM guidelines was that the Holter monitor should be repeated every one to two years. The cardiac MRI can be repeated every three to five years. Uh, but honestly, there are things like uh, fainting episodes that you need to let your healthcare team know about if you have one at all, uh, or if you have a different type of one than you've had in the past, and it's been determined to be a vagal episode. But if you have a different type of fainting episode, that's an important thing. If you have a family member who dies without warning, whether or not they had a pre-existing diagnosis of HCM, you need to let your HCM doctor know about that because it might influence some discussions and testing that, that you need as a patient. Those are all great points. Um, while we don't want to minimize the risk of sudden death uh, because it's an important factor, I'm going to bring up a couple of points here. 
if you've been advised that you are at high risk, but you're not feeling badly, you don't have symptoms, please don't be misled that no symptoms means no risk. We have lost too many people, typically young people, who were advised that they're at high risk and they wanted to wait a while. Um, you don't get a second chance to make that decision sometimes. So if you've been advised that you're at high risk, please be timely in your communication with your healthcare team. We know not everybody's ready to do it right away. Get yourself ready psychologically for this process, but please don't delay once you're given the information that you are at a higher risk. Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, shortness of breath and chest pain and, and palpitations are usually a completely distinct entity from sudden death. It's called sudden cardiac arrest for a reason. It happens without warning. So, so yes, I've had so many people where they say, well, I hear what you're saying. I'll wait until I get worse. And well, the, the next worst might be that you don't wake up. So, so if you have those high risk features, you have to divorce that from the discussion about whether you're having shortness of breath or not. And I think if anybody gets anything out of today's podcast, that little nugget there is really, really important. But pivoting from that to the opposite side of the spectrum, when I began the work of the HCMA in 1996, we used a statistic that patients with HCM were likely to achieve the normal life expectancy at that time with 73 years old, average male and female. Are patients with HCM doomed to a short existence or are they living normal lifespans? HCM is completely compatible with living a normal number of years and having a good quality of life. Cardiac arrest can occur in some families. Other things can happen, but most people with HCM should expect to live to their sixth, seventh, eighth decade of life, depending on what the, you know, whatever your family history is. I mean, like I say, most people die from with HCM die from non-cardiac related things. Now, if your family uh, has a strong history of colon cancer, that's more likely to be the thing that's going to impact you than, than your HCM. That doesn't mean we blow it off and we don't pay attention to how you're doing. There are things that we look for. You know, we have to treat atrial fibrillation when it occurs. If you're starting to have symptoms, we treat that so that we can keep you as active and healthy as possible for as long as that. But we don't want our patients with HCM looking over their shoulder because most of them are going to do really well over the long term. Great points. To that point, Today, we have one of our, one of my longer term clients. I've known her for over 20 years. She has HCM. Unfortunately, she ran into some other type of cardiac complications and she's having surgery today at one of our centers and she's 80 years old and she's likely going to do fine as any other 80 year old would do going through something like this. But I've been work, walking with her since she's 60 and she's 80 today. And we have, we even have some members that are in their late nineties. Favorite story of all time, woman on the phone says, when can I go back to full-time work? And I'm like, well, I don't know. What do you do? I run cancer symposium. I've been doing it for 40 years. Mm -hmm. How old are you? <laughs> that doesn't matter. I'm like, well, I know it's only a number, but what are your expectations here? She was 93 years old and was upset that she could only work three days a week. With HCM, having had surgery six months prior. We tell patients when they come here, they will be dismissed from the hospital on day five after their myectomy. One of my patients, a 91-year-old woman, demanded to be dismissed on day four so she could go to her farm and do chores. She, she just, you know, it's time for me to get home and start taking care of the farm again. And this is day four. So there are people that do, do really well and are super resilient and have all that grit. It's the common thing to talk about in recent literature. So, so speaking of grit... The topic for the HCMA for this month is emotional wellness. I don't necessarily believe that 
this is specific to an individual with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. We all have stressors. We all have challenges. We all have life circumstances that challenges us at times, whether you're a physician, a patient, a caregiver, a school teacher, a police officer, a baker. I don't care what you do. There's stress in your life. And we all have to take care of that. Now, within the HCM community, I almost look at this as two different communities within a community. We have the patients and the families who are dealing with this. And we also have physicians and teams that are dealing with it too. So I want to like just lean in for just a second to say it's important for everybody to take care of their mental health and their stress so that we can all have good communication and we can all understand each other. I won't lean in on the professional side today. I will lean in on the patient side and say, what are the tips and tricks that Mayo Clinic offers to its patients for mental health and mental wellness in the face of a diagnosis of HCM? All of what you said is, is absolutely true. Everyone, every human being is going to have stressors in times when they're feeling anxious or depressed or, or other things. And it's, it is particularly relevant to all patients who get a diagnosis that involves their heart. It's been well studied decades ago that people who had bypass surgery, people who had heart attacks, had a very high rate of clinical depression following those events. Because when you hear that there's something wrong with your heart, it is one of those things that, that your psyche says, what? And so I, I share with, I mean, it's, it's also very interesting, the number of patients who are diagnosed incidentally, they have a insurance-based ECG or our doctor hears a murmur on a patient who previously felt or admitted to no symptoms prior to that point. And within that first six months, they've got a lot of symptoms. Now, some of that's because we mentally tune into what's going on with our heart because now we've been told we have this 11-syllable diagnosis and I have to pay attention to it. And that starts to play with their minds. But you know, one of the things is just knowing that almost everyone else who goes through any diagnosis, any heart diagnosis, and certainly HCM goes through a similar process to some degree. You're not alone. It's not unique. It, ha it happens to everyone. And so knowing that, talking about the, you know, the, the preamble you put in about what should most patients expect, well, they should expect to live to a ripe old age. There might be some things that happen along the way, but we deal with them when they come up and those kind of things. So it, it, you hope to normalize those kind of things. We obviously have our care team, our, our providers try to talk to each of their patients about that. Our nursing team that works specifically with our HCM patients can help, you know, patients understand what they've seen before in other patients. And this is, this is how it goes when you're starting the medications, those types of things with the HCMA, with the HCM Academy, HCM Beat, all of these organizations that are trying to make this less of a mystery. So therefore, it's not as scary. I'll, I'll help us deal with that. But but there are some there then are some patients who they just naturally need more help than that. They actually need to talk to professional in in the world of mental health, and and that's fine. I'm a big believer in that. And we we have a specific team at Mayo that is called healthcare related anxiety. So it's not that you're an anxious person in general, but you have anxiety specifically around your health condition. And it's starting to really impact your quality of life because you you haven't yet figured out the coping mechanisms that work for you. And so so I have referred a number of patients to that team. I think they do a really nice job. So I'll, I'll pause there, at least because I've just said a lot of words. They, they were all good words. I think the acknowledgement that 
cardiologists tend to focus on the heart and the, the care team in cardiology is focused on your cardiac well-being primarily, secondarily trying to provide additional assistance for that mental health piece. When you've gone beyond that, it's okay to go outside of cardiology and get care. I know some people in the country are challenged and there is a mental health shortage right now. Thankfully, there's been some federal resources that are going to be delivered to this area to hopefully provide more mental health services. But we're starting to think out of the box a little bit more. There are app-based therapy programs that can be very, very beneficial. And you know what? Not every therapist is the right match. And it might take you one or two to find somebody that you can talk to. Don't be afraid if you talk to somebody and you're like, okay, that was useless. We did not connect. They're human. You're human. You got to find the right human. And you can use these apps to find the right human. And they have algorithms that try to help match you. And we've had a number of people do really well on those. We've also had people do well with one-on-one talk therapy. I feel so strongly about therapy. I raised a therapist. My daughter is now a licensed therapist, which that makes mama real proud. But she does a different kind of therapy. She does equine-based therapy. So you can work with a horse to learn how to balance your anxiety. It's kind of a cool concept. There's not many of them in the country. And my kid's one of them. So proud mama moment. Ta-da. Okay, moving on. But there's lots of different types of therapy. There's lots of different mechanisms. I know somebody who does swim therapy. They talk to a counselor and they go for a swim. Walk and talk therapy. Sometimes challenging with some people with HCM, but if your HCM is well-managed and you can walk and talk, there's just different ways of processing therapy. And you shouldn't be embarrassed or ashamed or stigmatized because life is complicated. And I know everybody says, well, we're living in challenging times. And every time that you are living is a challenging time. But we have stressors that never existed before. The constant onslaught of social media, 24-hour news. You see everything that's happening in the world when you only used to see what was happening in your neighborhood. And for some people, that's a little overwhelming on top of everything else that they're dealing with. So we're all in this together. We're going to help each other through the process. And getting people help is going to be very individualized, very regionalized, maybe based on your healthcare access and the funding that's available. So one of the projects that HCMA is trying to build for next year is a program that will assist in building resiliency in HCM families. And the concept of resiliency isn't just, it's not a word, it's, it's actually a science. And there's peer-reviewed literature on resiliency and how to build it and why it's important. And some people have inborn resiliency. Nothing seems to ever get them down. I don't think that that's really true because I think I'm one of the people that people think are just naturally resilient. It's not true. I went through a heart transplant, people. Hello. Not exactly a benign situation. I use mental health services to help me balance that. And I needed help dealing with my own mortality at that point, which I refused to accept was like inevitably ending. And maybe I'm here out of sheer stubbornness, but I learned some skills and they helped me live a better life and they helped me get it through every day. Whether I had HCM or I have the new heart, it doesn't matter. So we're going to work on bringing in some professionals to help provide some training on building resiliency not only in the individual patient, but within the HCM family. 
as HDM families have other challenges. So Steve, we talked a little bit about the individual patient, but what about the family aspect? Yeah, so th- there's lots of lots of great stuff in there. I, I do want to double down on your endorsement for professional therapists. As an individual, when you're going through whatever the life stressor is, your new diagnosis of your hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, relationship problems, whatever, it's the first time you're going through it and you feel like you're alone and you feel like you have to come up with the answers on your own. But yet there's these teams of professional therapists who have seen scores of people wrestle with the same or similar issues, and they can tell you what they've seen work and what they've seen fail miserably to help help put some guardrails around your approach to things. And so that's, you, you don't go to a therapist because you're crazy. You go to a therapist because you actually are, are recognizing, I, I need some help to navigate this because I've never had to do this before. And you're not alone. Many people go through these things, but rolling it back, there's lots of things that we all need to do short of professional services as well. And, and you mentioned all the social media, but also the life by video conference is increasing our stress levels. Well documented that we are not connecting to other human beings the same way because when we just click the leave meeting button and then click the new start meeting button, we didn't actually walk from one conference room to the other where you actually got to learn what Lisa did over the weekend and what her daughter did and see how she laughs at certain things. And that's those little micro moments where you learn about people versus just our faces on, on zoom or whatnot. And so we do have a ramp, ramped up stress. Obviously the public health emergencies ramped up our stress, not you know independent of that, but going for a walk, just going for walks is one of the strongest self-balancer a person can do. There's a quote, I think it's from Thoreau, who said, no one felt worse after going for a walk. Now, the idea is you don't go for a walk and ruminate on your problem. You go for a walk and you focus on how the leaves look today versus yesterday. Which way is the wind blowing? I've gotten different birds out here today. Or my dog is having a great time running beside me or whatever it is. But you go for a walk to move your body, to focus on some different things. Or maybe you go with a friend and you have a conversation that is completely unrelated to the problem you're dealing with because you need to to turn off the gears about that problem or that anxiety for a little bit. Taking care of your physical body in other ways, stretching physical activities uh, to the extent that that you can do them based on the status of of where you are on on your journey as a patient, doubling down on your friendships, on your family connections, meeting with your loved ones and expressing that with them are all important aspects that is not, as you say, unique to HCM. That's part of being, you know, the human existence. Yes. Mm-hmm. HCM stressor, which might make it more important for certain people to have to need that, but it's stuff we all have to do. You bring up my, my favorite medicine of all time is nature. I love to go for hikes. I don't have enough time to do the hikes that I like to do. Some of them are challenging. Some of them are just relaxing. Know your path. You know, with HCM, we tend to go for for flatter walking paths, but all trails, man, they're dead on on their maps. So you've got that. The one sport that I wish I took up earlier in life that I was afraid of because of HCM but I think that was unfounded, was kayaking. It's a pretty simple activity. You can coast. You don't have to, you know, we're not doing whitewater rafting here, people. We're talking about a quiet lake in the middle of nowhere and on a little boat that if you fell out, you could get to the edge. You're like nothing, nothing crazy. 
gosh, having a few moments on the water with nobody else near you for, you know, you got your 40 foot, you know, your other person's up ahead of you. You never go alone, but to have that mental break mm-hmm. and having that moment of, of solitude is, is beautiful. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't tried it, give it a shot. It, it's nice. Either that or walk in the woods are, are my favorite things. And when I can't do either, okay, leaves a weirdness here. I go outside barefoot and I stand in the grass. I love the feel of grass on my feet. It reminds me I'm connected to the earth. And it just like, it's that five minutes of yep. forget about everything else. I just want to connect with the earth for a minute. A little metaphysical Lisa there, I guess maybe, but it's a connection point. And, and it's grounding, that literal grounding uh, is it can be very important. Yeah, it's, it works. And a friend told me once, just go walk outside barefoot. I'm like, it's not warm out. It's not summer. It doesn't matter. Just five minutes. I'm like, oh my God, that worked. Grounding yourself and, and letting yourself not think for a minute. I come up with the best solutions to problems when I'm not thinking. Does that make sense? I don't know. It, it, it does because when we sit and think, we actually kind of, for a metaphor, we kind of wear in the pathway of that thinking. And it's hard to get out of that, that thinking. And then when you get up and leave the room, leave the computer screen, and you see something else, you've changed some of those neural connections and it allows you to break free from the, the recursive, the recurrent same thoughts that you're having. So, so it's, a, it's an important thing to change your environment focus on something else for a while. It's also why people have brilliant ideas in the shower. Oh my uh, God. I love showers. They're my best ideas. <laughs> They're my best ideas. My shower ideas. We're getting validation from some of the people in the um, Facebook group right now that grounding is important to them. And they've tried these things before. The other thing that's in that sphere is taking a look at the bigger picture. You and I have talked about this before, but yeah, your problems are real. There's nothing that let's not invalidate that. But then when you take a look back and you see what's going on to others around you, uh, patients who have inoperable cancers, the situation in Ukraine, what happened in Florida with the hurricanes, there's lots of stuff going on and your problems are real. But you know, there, there's this great fable of if you could all put your, put your problems in a pile and then choose which problems you wanted. You'd still choose your same problems back at the end of the day, rather than choosing someone else's problems. And so just putting yourself in perspective to the broader world and and those kind of things can sometimes help you feel less stress about that thing. That's really under your skin today or this week or this month. Absolutely. The problems that we have today are not the problems we're going to have tomorrow. They're going to be different. And it's not about having a problem. It's about how you respond to that problem. We have each faced professionally and personally challenges in our life. And I think part of building resiliency is knowing how you as an individual best cope with a stressor. Some people need to talk it out. Some people need to be quiet. Some people need to go for a walk. Some people need to be in a crowd. Some people, you know what you need. Just try not to make a drugs and alcohol. You know, to get through the moment, think it out. It's okay to feel bad about something for a while, as long as you know how to make yourself feel better later. And grief is real. Grief is a process. Mm -hmm. We grieve many things. We grieve lost relationships. We grieve lost loved ones. We grieve 
lost jobs, changes in jobs, changes in the, in the world, we grieve. And grief is an ongoing process. But unevaluated grief and unprocessed grief, that turns into something else. So don't be afraid to, to take time to grieve things that are changing. And many patients grieve their diagnosis. And I think that takes about a year and a half to two years to kind of get through and understand that it's just a part of you now. It's not all of you. It doesn't define you. It's a piece of you, like other pieces of you. And there's good and bad that come out of everything. If I told you 26, 27 years ago that something good could come from my sister's death, I would have locked myself in an institution because there's no way anything good could have come out of a 36-year-old mother of two dying from mismanaged HCM. But the only reason I'm here today talking about this and talking to Steve Almond from the Mayo Clinic and all of our other great partners is because my sister died. And we took something horrible and we turned it into something beautiful. So perspective changes with time. Yeah, and, and you just articulated something there as well that well, I have, I have a, a sign on my desk in the room that has a circle that has things that matter and another circle says things you can control. And the things you should worry about are the intersection between those two because you can't really do much about those. You can't, you couldn't change that your sister died. Nope. What you could control is, well, what do I do in response to this? How do I now act or react to that? And, and you uh, and your family uh, started this, this organization that has you know, changed the game in terms of what, what people are dealing with in terms of HCM. We can't worry about, we can't spend too much time worrying about yesterday because yesterday's done. It's, it's already hard encoded. It's not changing. And we also can't spend too much time worrying about what's to come because there's so little we can do to change about what's to come. And so if you focus on how, how do we feel good today? How do we, how do we behave, act, and love today? Those, those are great things to... There's the word. There's the word that we don't talk about enough. The word love. People are funny about the word love. Yep. Because it, immediately you go to romantic love. And okay, that's a nice kind of love. But there's lots of other love. Mm -hmm. There's friendship. There's appreciation. There's acknowledgement love. There's so much that we can do with the energy of love. But when we're in a stress situation, hate and anger tend to overshadow love. And they're on opposite ends of the sphere. So if you can accept that something bad happens, but keep love and kindness in your heart, it helps you see more clearly. Wow, we're going down a tunnel here, Steve. Yeah, we, we, yeah we're, we're really getting deep into the... <laughs> we went down, and but I think it's a good place to be because yeah. who thinks when going to their HCM clinic, who goes in with love in their heart? Yeah. Who goes in with fear in their heart? If you let the love come out mm -hmm. a little bit more and be appreciative... I know I've been to many, 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 many doctor's appointments in my life. They're not necessarily lovely experiences of driving and parking and waiting and poking and prodding and waiting and talking about things you don't really want to talk about. It's stressful. But if you think about it, this is, I'll, t I'll use my, you used the row before I'm going to use Mary Oliver. Tell me what it is you plan to do with your one wild and precious life. If you tell yourself that before you go into your doctor's appointment, that interaction 
is to help you live your best life. Not to make you miserable or make you do anything, but to enhance your quality and length of life. And if you go to that appointment, understanding this is why I'm here, then you enter in with love. Damn, I didn't expect to go down that rabbit hole, but I like it. I do. Okay. So if anybody has any questions or comments or techniques that have worked for you, please post them on Facebook now and we can discuss them a little bit. I will talk about one other concept that I have found helpful and that's meditation. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not the world's best meditator. I get monkey mind like the rest of us. But if you can take a two minute meditation when you're in the middle of a chaotic day, feet on the floor, back straight, deep breaths, breathing either way down into the belly or doing some deep heart breathing is is another technique. There's lots of different techniques to do breathing. But if you just take those two minutes a couple of times a week, then you'll want more. And then you'll add your two minutes to three minutes and your three minutes to four minutes. You don't need to sit in meditation for a half an hour. Nobody really has time for that. But if you can find those few minutes to meditate and just bring, bring your heart rate down a little bit, get your mind connected to your heart, And remember that you're one being and just acknowledge that we're all going through a lot and just take a minute to clear your mind. These are really easy, easy things to do, but hard things to remember to do. My Fitbit reminds me because it has a little meditation program in there where you can do mindfulness for two minutes and you keep your hand over the watch. And when the two minutes is over, it tells you you can go back to whatever you were doing now. And you can track yourself with technology like that. I think we can lean into technology a little bit more to help us rather than distract us. I love the Calm app. It helps you disconnect. I love nature sounds on the on the phone when I go to sleep. I just leave that on. It gets your mind out of that think circle. Yeah. And it lets you relax. Can we talk a little bit about sleep as oh, it related to emotional wellness? Yeah, I think it's, I was going to go there anyway. So you read my mind. It is such a crucial element to what we do. So if you don't sleep and go through the right stages at night, your body stays stressed overnight, which means you're going to wake up already stressed. But it's such a challenging thing because you can also cause yourself to freak out more if you if you don't think you got a good night's sleep and you start worrying about your sleep. So it, it can be a, 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 a cyclical thing, but Having good sleep hygiene is number one. You you really do need to be consistent with your going to bed and waking up times. Your body can get into that rhythm and 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 help you that way. Not eating or drinking, particularly alcohol, too close to bedtime. Yes, we all know how alcohol can help us relax and it makes us fall asleep quickly, but it inhibits the restorative sleep stages. And so if, if you're wearing a Fitbit and it measures your heart rate and you have a uh, drink of choice within an hour of going to bed, your heart rate overnight will be higher and your heart rate variability will not be in a healthy thing. And you will wake up in the morning, not as restored and relaxed and refreshed for the next day. And, and so you're going to be less resilient throughout that day because you aren't restored. And so, you know, making sure that you get some physical exercise, but not right before bed that you have your evening meal, not 
just moments before you go to bed. And likewise, I mean, look, Lisa knows I, I enjoy an alcoholic beverage. Um, but if you, if you don't rely on that as a crutch to fall asleep, cause it won't work. And if you separate it from when you have it, if you make happy hour, happy hour <laughs> and bedtime, bedtime, uh, you're going to sleep better. And if you're having problems with sleep, even if it's not a full-blown diagnosis like sleep apnea, yes, absolutely. You have to get that treated. But if you're just not sleeping well, Sleep medicine centers deal with that as well. They can help you go through a series of steps to get your sleep hygiene in the right order uh, so that you are getting rested each day. It's it's such a critical component. In fact, it, I don't maybe one of the first podcasts you and I did, Lisa, I think I mentioned that uh, this year was year I was actually going to focus on my own sleep because I I just yeah. wasn't doing it. by making that my focus. Other aspects of my health have improved just because I'm only focused on this. So I did the same thing after my transplant and after all the meds kind of calmed down, my sleep was horrible going into transplant because I wasn't exercising and moving. So I wasn't tired physically. So I wasn't sleeping well while really ill. And then you're recovering, you're on steroids, and then you can't sleep because you're on steroids. And then I finally said, okay, I need to do something here. So I did use the wearable technology to start tracking my sleep and figuring out how many times a night I was waking up, reevaluating in the morning. Why did I wake up? What did I do? Um, I got blackout windows for my uh, bedroom because my neighbor has lights outside. And when a deer would walk by, it would trip the lights. The lights would light up the room and my brain would say, it's time to wake up. So we got blackout windows. I've changed my pillow three times and I'm probably going for a fourth. I haven't found perfection yet. But I am able to get on average seven hours and three minutes of sleep a night. And that's my sweet spot. If I go beyond it, I'm tired. If I don't get enough, I'm tired. So I found my sweet spot. And everything else has to rotate around that because if I don't get that sleep, I'm not productive. Mm -hmm. And if I'm not productive, then I'm agitated. If I'm agitated, I'm not sleeping well. And it just turns. So I think sleep is critically important. And while I'm not particularly happy with my current version of Fitbit, the sense is not so great. Um, I've been through six of them so far in a year and a half. I love the algorithms that Fitbit has come up with and there's nice traceability and you can, you don't want to live in your numbers, but you want to check in. How did I sleep? And now there's a readiness score. Have you seen this one? I love the readiness score. So I hit a 98 on Saturday which was the day of our Unmasked the Great Masquerader Ball. And I was ready. And the next day, I was a one. (laughs) (laughs) It was a damn thing. I'm like, I'm going to listen to the Fitbit. And we just chilled out for the day. So you need to know how to sleep. And you need to know how to exercise. And you need to know how to rest. Yeah, you know, and screen time is important for that as well. You need, we need to turn off our phones, turn off our computers, our, our tablets, even our TVs with a gap because it tells your body you're going to rest mode rather than stimulating all the light and, and activation centers. I, I, I will say, and I, I do use a lot of those numbers. I don't, I don't use them every day. And for anyone who may be listening that has been a patient of mine and they've asked me what heart rate should I be doing during exercise, you know that I'm telling you not to focus on the numbers too much because we can get so worried about the number rather than the concept that we're trying to achieve that we actually don't don't get where we're going. And and I shared this with Lisa before. One of my one of my good colleagues is a doctor who takes care of patients with diabetes, and they now have 
the continuous glucose meters that tells them all the time what their blood sugar is and they have their insulin pump, which is delivering their insulin. And he reminds them that we don't drive a car by looking at the speedometer or into a mirror. We have to look at the road. And so you have to remember to look at what you're doing and not just focus on numbers all the time. They're helpful. They can give you insights and then you act on those insights and then you reassess, you know, down the road at some point. We have a comment from Facebook, which I think is really interesting. Cheryl once had an energy therapist who told her to go sleep with some dirt from her backyard under her bed that it would ground her and connect her. Nice. I hope it worked for you. I think there's things that we can lean on science for. And there's things that have worked for decades and millennia and we don't quite understand the why and okay going down the metaphysical path again lisa's been doing some reading lately but the world is full of energy there's all different energy sources how you connect to those energy sources because you are an energy source i am an energy source there's an interaction of energy you've walked into a room and it's got a good vibe everybody's happy. You walk into a room and it does not have a good vibe and you want to get out. There's something there that's unmeasurable, but you can feel it. And if you create the environment that feels the best to you, you're going to be in a better mental state. I like burning candles in my house. My mother hated candles. I never had candles growing up. We were not allowed in the house. She didn't like the smell. I burn candles everywhere because it's an it's a trigger for me. This is my place. I can relax here. My office, I burn a candle. I burn sage. I just, I like to have that in the area. It creates a better energy for me. Crazy? Maybe. Science? A little. Universe? Absolutely. Yep. So, Steve, any final thoughts before I jump on an airplane and go back to New Jersey? Oh, um, well, travel safe. <laughs> Thank you. Wash your hands. Um, uh, no, I think I think this is a great topic and it is one that that we uh, don't pay attention enough to or talk about enough with our patients. Frankly, as you said, as a cardiologist, I focus on the heart. Patients want to hear about their heart. They're worried about their heart. They want to see how they've done those types of things. And then we forget to make sure that everyone is emotionally and psychologically in, in, in the right place as well. And it, it takes a village. And so we all have to help each other address those things all the time. Step one, speak to your care team. Step two, HCMA has online discussion groups, our online forums. You can share experiences with others, remembering that we're all quite variable. Sometimes those with the average stories may not be as vocal as those who are going through a trauma at that time. So please don't think that everything is doom and gloom. If somebody in the community is having a hard time, we're all going to go through little, you know, bumps and hills and valleys over time. So, so don't overthink if somebody else is having an issue. Oh my, I'm going to have that issue too. But when you are having a little bit of stress, your community can come there to support you. You can join the discussion groups. You might need more than that. Then work with your care team to find a therapist online or otherwise. If that's not working, a psychologist or a, a psychiatrist can help prescribe medications. Please do not be stigmatized by needing medications to help your mental health. They're there for a reason. Please use them and please use them wisely. Some people will lean into things that have addictive values and there are so many options out there right now. Please make sure you understand all of the options that are available before you choose something. You know, Steve, we didn't talk about something else for anxiety management that I do want to lean into. And there's not a lot of science and I didn't warn you about this one. Cannabis. Uh, what are we thinking on cannabis right now? 
Uh, you know, I think that particularly with the with the um, legalization in many states, that there is the, the delivery vehicles uh, don't come with some of the negative consequences of smoke inhalants in your lungs and those types of things. And I think there are emerging data that suggest for a lot of things, the CBD does have benefits can help relieve anxiety, can help with some chronic pain syndromes, can help with some neuropathic pain syndromes. So I think we probably need to do some more direct research, obviously, to know whether it has any impact on HCM specifically, or maybe new HCM medications to make sure it's not interfering with any of those types of things. But I, I think that that we're seeing lots of people uh, benefit from a non-illicit approach to using CBD and, and, and similar products. So cannabinoids actually have a lot of benefits that we haven't figured out yet. We don't quite understand all the risks because it was illegal to research it for many right. years. And now we're demystifying it, decriminalizing it. And I think there's going to be a lot of advances here. I know a lot of patients who are using CBD for anxiety management, they report good outcomes. Um, some people try it and they don't like it. They don't, they get palpitations. Nope. So don't use it. But I also don't want people leaning in on chemicals only. If you're only using a medication or a supplement or an agent and not dealing with talking it out and processing the emotions, if you're looking to blunt your emotions, probably not going to get you where you want to go. You got to talk about it. You got to deal with it, even if it's tough, tough stuff. Carla asked, doesn't CBD constrict? the arteries. Do we know that? I guess I don't know the ex exact data on that, but I have not seen any warnings from any of my cardiology conferences, grand rounds, suggesting that people that have arterial disease should be avoiding it necessarily. I haven't seen it promoted for that, but if it, if it truly caused significant vasoconstriction, I would think that we would be seeing more warnings in heart disease patients to, to not use it. I would agree. I would say that there's there's been some little studies elsewhere on um, cardiovascular implications of utilization of CBD. CBD is one thing. THC is something else. There's so many different strains of THC right now. It's really, I think, going to end up being about strains and what you're actually ingesting. And there's actually some data in the transplant community that CBD can lower cancer risks, but I'm not quite sure that I've seen that prove out at this point, but people like to talk. People like to talk. Some updates and announcements from the HCMA. Some of them are a little far reaching. February 23rd will be HCM Awareness Day nationally. We are looking for some Share Your Story participants. And we will be building out some content for that day. And we hope to have all of our Center of Excellence partners maybe have little team meetings that day where they can all join in on some online events with us. So we'll be streaming at some point through the day. I'm not doing what I did last year. I did nine hours live. That was insanity. Not going to do that again, but we will be providing a full day of content, some of which will be pre-recorded, some of which will be live. So mark your calendars now. HCMA is selling Christmas ornaments and holiday ornaments this year. You can find them on our website and you can have HCMA on your tree and be part of our big hearted community. 
with our cute little new Christmas ornaments that I bought last year because I've always wanted to do an ornament. So now we have an ornament. We have Giving Tuesday coming up, which last year we did so well on Giving Tuesday. Thank you to your generosity. We were able to provide scholarships to all of our centers to use for low-income patients. So we hope that you consider participating in Giving Tuesday. I don't have the grand total yet from last week's event, but last week we held the great Unmasked the Great Masquerader Ball to raise money for the Lori Fund. And we are now issuing scholarships or grants, I should say, for travel stipends for those of you traveling into HCMA Recognized Center of Excellence Care and you need some help with the travel. We'll provide up to $600 per person per year for travel to an HCM center for evaluation or to a transplant patient or transplant center. To those who are listening who are at centers, if you have patients in need, please have them apply. We have the funds available now. We opened the Lori Fund on January 9th, 2022, and we issued our first grant in October. So we raised the money. Now we're actually able to start giving money away, which is fantastic. Maybe we can put some information up on the Facebook page on where they can get the application for the Lori Travel Fund. We're going to American Heart Association next week. I also, after American Heart, and I'll talk to you about that in a second, I will be heading hopefully to Texas to meet with Dr. Bill Roberts once again to do an anatomy class in HCM with some of our transplant patients' hearts. And I'm hoping to organize a little interview and we'll push this out. I'm hoping to get him and Barry together and we'll have a awesome. conversation. HCM history in the making, if, if I can put it that way. Steve, thank you so much for sharing today. We really enjoyed this conversation and I hope our listeners did too. And we'll see you in two months. Sounds good. Take care, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye.